God's greatness and the fact that his attributes are his distinguishing characteristics of his divine nature. We reviewed that God is eternal. Uh, God is self-existent. We said God is holy. God is immutable. We said that uh, God is uh, infinite and he is omnipotent. And then we said he is omnipresent and omniscient. And then uh, we left off last week with God is love. And we just reviewed that a little bit. Uh, I won't take the time to go back through what we talked about, about the Imago Day uh, and so forth. But we are now talking about God is righteous. And boy, I'm so bummed that I didn't have the audio uh, connected. But uh, anyway, the Lord is in control. And uh, for whatever reason, this is it is what it is. So we're, we camped out in Romans 3.21. And just to summarize, God's righteousness is the standard. Nobody can get God's righteousness unless it is imputed or given to them. The only way it can be given to us is to be imputed by Christ, by faith. So Christ's righteousness is given to us, imputed to us uh, by uh, faith. So uh, any other thoughts on God's righteousness? We, we looked at David's words in Psalm 11, verse 7, uh, and then also Daniel uh, it says, O oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you. And the application of this is that because God is righteous, we have access to the standard of right and wrong. We, we don't have to wonder. You know, we live in a day where truth is under attack. Postmodern thinking is there are no absolutes. There is no truth. Uh, but with God, he's, he's revealed to us the truth, the complete standard of right and wrong. And uh, again, when you're living out the new man, you're only going to produce the fruit of the Spirit and righteous behavior. Nobody can be sinning and blame that on their position in Christ. You can't say, well, if I wasn't in Christ, I wouldn't be sinning. No, no, it's, it's when you're not abiding in Christ that you're sinning. It's the old man. Sin is always sourced in the old nature. The, or to say it the other way, the new nature never produces sin. Never produces sin. So uh, when will the old nature be completely eradicated? When we're in heaven. When we're in heaven. Amen. At the glorification. So, um, you know, we, we, we wish that when we trusted Christ, the, um, you know, the old man was eradicated and that the new man came in and replaced it. That's not what happens. What happens is before we get saved, we're sold under sin. We only have the old man who's dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. But once we get saved, then we are reborn. There's a birth that takes place in our spirit. And that birth, again, doesn't replace the old man. Paul describes that many times in Colossians, Ephesians, and Romans 7. In Galatians uh, 5, the struggle between the two. But what happens is there's a new birth. And there's a new creation. And that new creation, to the extent that we feed it and stay in the Word, and we're uh, walking in the Spirit, walking by faith, uh, we will produce that type of behavior. But when we cater back to that old man, like Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6-8, through 8, it's like going back into prison from which we've been set free. Or putting on the old clothes, which we've torn off and replaced with brand new clothes, right? Uh, so in, so uh, God's righteousness 
essentially is the standard for all comparison. And I think we've all known people that we would consider to be very godly people, very righteous people, and we look up to them. I think if you're a mature believer, that's what you strive for. You know, we, we wake up every day and say, how can I look more like Christ each day? Um, but the fact of the matter is, um, you know, the opposite is also true. Some people who are believers never really grow much. They, they're stunted in their spiritual growth, and therefore they look like... You, you, ever, you ever known an adult, uh, 20-somethings, let's just say, who just is incredibly immature and acts like a child? course we've all seen that um, the same thing can be hap- can happen spiritually and we would never look at that individual who's acting very immature throwing a temper tantrum acting like a two-year-old and say you're not a human being right of course we would yet why do we do that when it comes to spiritual life someone who's living in sin we go you're not a christian you've never been born right um no, they've been born, potentially, if they've trusted Christ. Again, I'm not arguing that everyone who says they're a Christian automatically is a Christian. I think there are a lot of people who think they're believers because they walked an aisle, signed a card, raised a hand, made a commitment, made a pledge, you know, took the sacraments, did all kinds of other things that Satan, as he's blinding men's hearts to the gospel, tells people to do in order to be right with God, and they're not saved. Uh, so I'm not suggesting that everyone who says they're saved is saved. But what I'm saying is, the issue of whether one is saved or not has nothing to do with their behavior. You know, we're never called upon to look at our behavior to determine whether or not we are a believer. Now, I know that some of you might be thinking of some passages, some of you Bible scholars, uh, that you go, well, what about this verse? Or what about that passage? Or doesn't it say this? I'm happy to address those if you if you think of any, because they're all taken out of context, right? Um but we're never told to look at our behavior to determine whether or not we are heaven-bound or saved, going to heaven. Where does our assurance of our eternity in heaven rest? In, Jesus in the promise of Jesus Christ. So uh, he doesn't put an asterisk by it when he said, I give you eternal life. He doesn't say, I give you eternal life, asterisk, footnote at the bottom of the page, unless you sin for a long time or unless you you know do this or do that or if you commit this or you don't your commitment wanes and all that it's like we talked about sunday in the message on discipleship you know there's a distinction between discipleship and salvation and i personally i thank god that my eternal destiny is not contingent upon my my allegiance to christ because i'm not always allegiant to him i'm just being honest and it's not. It's not contingent on that. It's contingent upon the promise of Christ. So any other thoughts about uh, the, the, the righteousness of God? Number 10. Yeah. I know you've addressed this before, but James says faith without works is dead. Yeah. Faith cannot save you without works. Right. Help me with that. Again. So the comment, the question is about... Uh, Faith without works is dead, uh, James 2. We've talked about this many times. I have a section on it in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. Uh, But the short answer is, you cannot be saved, as James says, without good works. Now, does that sound problematic? It should. And the reason James says that is because he is not talking about eternal salvation. 
He never once mentions heaven, hell, eternity, damnation, and nothing. The word save, and this is something you need to you know, embed in your mind because it's, it's going to come back to bite you again and again, not you, but everybody. The word save in the Bible just means delivered. And 58% of the time, and again, it's used, so uh, uh, so is used, uh, it's the Greek verb for save, is used 107 times in the New Testament. And 58%, more than half, obviously, it has nothing to do with eternal salvation, but deliverance from sickness, harm, danger, trouble. So it's used repeatedly. Uh, like when the disciples were in the, sh- uh, in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus was asleep. Do you remember that? And they went and they woke him up and they said, Lord, save us. We're drowning. They did not mean, Lord, give us eternal life. We're going to hell. They meant rescue us. So James uses the word save five times in his epistle. And all five times he's speaking of temporal deliverance. And so in James 2, 14 to 26, what he's saying is, faith will get you to heaven, but it will not save you from the death-dealing consequences of sin. You can be saved eternally by faith, but if you don't live out that faith, it's going to be of no value. It'd be like saying to a poor, destitute, naked person, God bless you, but not giving them a blanket or food. And that's the illustration he uses. So we've heard that passage taught wrong so many times that we're conditioned to think, well, you know, James was talking about heaven and he was talking about uh, you know, a spurious faith that, you know, you're, you know, this is the way Calvinists take that passage with that famous uh, tautology that makes no sense. They could, they say, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. You ever heard that? It makes, it's nonsense. It's nonsensical. You know, uh, you, you, you know, if you say that you're saved by faith alone, you can't then come around on the back end and say, but you got to have works or you didn't have faith. <laughs> so works have nothing to do with eternal salvation. It's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Titus 3.5, the theme verse of our ministry. Or Galatians 2.8-9, For by grace you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So James is talking here to believers. He, <clears throat> he addresses them as brothers. And he says in James, let's go ahead and put it up. He says uh, in James 2.14, uh, what does it uh, profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? What does it profit, my brethren, if someone has faith but he does not have works? Can faith save him? And by the way, that last part there, that question, can faith uh, save him, in Greek is a required answer of no. So a paraphrase, I mean, that's a wooden translation. But a paraphrase would be, faith cannot save him, can it? And the answer is no, it can't. So the issue here is profit. See that word profit? He's saying, what's the benefit? What's the, not eternally. He's saying, what's the benefit? What's the profit? The word profit is ophelo. It means, uh, yeah, ophelos is the, uh, is the noun. Ophelo is the verb. Ophelos means to heap up or accumulate. What will you heap up or accumulate? If you've got faith, parenthesis, that'll get you to heaven because the Bible is crystal clear, cover to cover, that it's by faith that you get to heaven. But you don't have works. Can faith deliver you? Deliver you from what? 
What's the context? Well, remember in chapter 1, Paul had said, uh, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, they'll see how many of you remember what we talked about Sunday from Acts 21. This word soul is the Greek word psuche, and it means what? Life. It's the same thing that's used elsewhere, speaking of people dying and losing their lives. This is not a good translation. It, it, it has a nuance of the entire being, but it also speaks about physical death. Remember what James had said just a little bit earlier in chapter 1, if I can find it here. He says, uh, sin, when it is full grown, brings forth what? Death. In other words, if you sin, you're going to die. Sin kills. Sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. Adam and Eve not only died spiritually, being separated from God. Remember, death means separation. But they died physically. And James is, the whole point of James's letter, and he's writing it to believers, uh, he says, uh, to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, and then he begins his letter by saying, my brethren, brethren, is a word that always refers, Adelphos always refers to believers. So he's writing to believers. And he's saying, look, you guys need to recognize that if you keep on giving in to temptation and keep sinning, and by the way, later in the letter, he, he says some of them were even committing murder. <laughs> uh, he says, uh, uh, and, and by the way, was King David a believer before he committed murder? Yes. Anyway, um, so he says, you know, you need to watch out because this sin that you're toying around with will kill you. If, if you keep going down this path of sin, you're going to die. So he says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and wickedness and receive. That word receive here is decamai. It's not lambano. Lambano means to take possession of. That's the word that's used when speaking of uh, receiving Christ for salvation. John 1, 12, to as many as received him. Same word in English, different word in Greek. In John 1, 12, it's lambano. It means take possession of. So if someone gives me this bottle of water and I take it, I've now received it, lambano. Decamai, which is used here, means to welcome and embrace. It deals with uh, eagerly, you know, following it. And so what he's saying is here, this word that's already been implanted in you, because you're saved, you're born again, you need to welcome and embrace it because it's able to save your life. And if you don't welcome and embrace it, you're going to die. And then he goes on, talks about partiality. He tells them, so speak and so act. That word do there is poeo. It means to, to do or act. Uh, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the only judgment, according to Scripture, that believers will ever face? The beam of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. Um, so, by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we know that's what he's referring to here. He's not talking about judgment for entrance into heaven, because Jesus said, and remember, this is James, the Lord's brother, who grew up with Jesus and no doubt heard him say this many times. Jesus said in John chapter, uh, I think it's John, so nice to be able to put up verses on the fly. I'm so thankful for this new computer. Uh, John 5, 24, he says, Whoever believes in me has passed from death 
to life and shall not come into judgment. When you trust in Him, when you believe in Jesus, you're not going to face uh, ju that kind of judgment. So going back to James, when he's after in chapter 1 here telling them, you know, receive the word, watch out for temptation, you're going to die if you keep going down this road. And now he's saying, look, act and speak in a way that you'll be judged at the Bema uh, according to the perfect law of liberty. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Because, and then remember, there were no chapter divisions or verse divisions. These little headings that you see here, faith without works is dead. That's what the English Bible translators and publishers put in to kind of make it easier to read. But this was a letter. There wasn't a verse 12, a verse 13, and a verse 14. The verse divisions didn't come along until 1551 AD, so 15 centuries after James wrote this. So he says, uh, you know, consider your reward at the judgment seat, because what will it profit you? What does the word profit mean again? To heap up or accumulate. What do you do at the judgment seat? You accumulate rewards. So what will you accumulate, my brethren, insert at the judgment seat, which he just referenced in the previous sentence, if you have faith but you, but you don't have works? Faith can't save you. Faith, faith can't deliver you from the death-dealing consequences of sin. It'll deliver you from the penalty of sin when you trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins. But it won't deliver you from the death-dealing consequences of sin. And then he goes on here. I don't know if we want to take the time to go through the rest of this. I've, I've written about this and talked about it extensively in different places. If you just search for James and on our YouTube channel or Rumble channel, you'll probably find some stuff out there about it. So I think for the sake of time, I'll, uh, unless you guys want me to kind of work through the rest of the passage with the uh, hypothetical objector. Yeah. Maybe I got a visual in my head. Could it be like comparing, trying to understand this, living in black and white versus the richness of color? What's the comparison? I understand the analogy between black and white and color, but... You know, you're still, you know, you're still saved, black and white. But when you truly start, you know, living, your life becomes more in color. Absolutely, yeah. So the analogy is just as, you know, when you're watching a movie in black and white, and then you turn around and watch the same movie in redigitized color, it really, things jump off the screen, it's more vi vibrant. In your Christian walk, if you've trusted Christ, but you're not living that out, living out that faith with works, uh, then uh, your your Christian life is going to be kind of stale and not. So, yeah, I mean, that's the whole point John the Apostle makes when he talks about the fullness of joy. And, you know, I write this to you, John says in First John chapter one, that your joy may be full. I think there are a lot of Christians out there who are, who are missing out on the true fullness of, of, of a relationship with Jesus because they're just getting by. They're not really living out uh, the Spirit. But this phrase here, someone will say, uh, that's a characteristic formula in Greek. We have similar things in English, but uh, it's a rhetorical device. And it's, it's more so an, or, you know, an orator's device than it is writing. But remember, this is a sermon. James is essentially writing a sermon to these believers. And, and it's called the, uh, uh, it's, it's an interlocution is the technical term, or a hypothetical objector. And what James is doing after explaining this point about, hey, if you ignore 
you know, living out your faith and producing good works, it's, it's, not, it's going to be ineffective, dead. Not non-existent, right? If we see a dead body, we don't go, oh, what was that? That was never a body. That was never a human being. No, we just it's a human being that's no longer vibrant. And in the same way, if a believer is wallowing around in sin, kind of like what you're saying, they're not vibrant. They're not effective. In fact, elsewhere, I think it's down here in verse 19 uh, or verse 20. See verse 20 here, if you can see that on the screen. Uh, this word, let me, let me highlight this in a color that like purple. See where it's purple, where it says dead? In the original Greek, if I can get, in the original Greek, there's a textual variant here. And even though twice before James has said faith without works is dead, uh, here, or, or he said faith without works is dead in verse 17 up in verse 14, it says faith can't save you. Here he says, Faith without works is dead, but it depending on which manuscript we use, it could mean it could be a different word, useless. Useless. And that's very interesting to me. Because it doesn't really matter which was the original, and we really won't know till we get to heaven. But either way, it shows either early on the scribes as they were transcribing this and, and copying manuscripts to be circulated, they understood that by dead James meant useless. Or he actually used the word useless. Either way, that's the, the essence of dead here. Dead doesn't mean non-existence. And that's the way the Calvinists take it, is that faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, was never real. It was fake. It didn't exist. They never got saved. They're going to hell. That, that contradicts everything else the Bible says about the relationship between faith and works. But when understood properly, James is saying, faith without works might get you to heaven, but it's not going to help you avoid the death-dealing consequences of sin. It's not going to deliver, that's the word, sotzo. Uh, it's not going to deliver you from the consequences of your, of your own sin. Because faith alone, while it's sufficient to get you to heaven, it's, not, it's useless for helping you grow unless you add works to it. Um, and then he uses the example of Abraham who, remember, he had faith in Genesis 15, but it wasn't until Genesis 22 that he actually put feet to the faith and offered Isaac on the altar. And that was some 20, I can't remember exactly, 20 to 40 years later. Are we to assume that Abraham wasn't a believer all those years? Like if he had died between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, he'd be in hell because he didn't have works? No, no. He was a believer. He just took that extraordinary step of obeying God on Mount Moriah there. But Back to this uh, hypothetical objector, this is really, if you look at 10 different English translations, they're all going to, you know, show this differently and show the uh, uh, punctuation differently. Um, but James is taking on the voice of a hypothetical objector. And whenever he's doing this, you got to think of it in terms of a sermon. So verses 14 to 17, James is speaking to his readers, his audience. Then he kind of takes on another personality and he says, now I know some of, someone might say this. And then he's going to answer that objector. And then he's going to come back and address the audience and say, so you see, and repeat his point. And you can tell he's doing this because uh, of the uh, tenses of, uh, you know, or the uh, number of the verb. So show me your faith. This is a uh, 
personal singular pronoun. Whereas up when you get down here to verse 20, when he says, but do you want to, or no, verse uh, 22, do you see this one? You can't see it on the screen, but this one is a plural. I mean, is a, uh, yeah, uh, uh, plural. So, uh, you know, or actually verse 24. So in English, we use the word you, singular or plural. I might say you can, or I could use it, you come with me, like you all come with me. In English, now if you're in Texas, it's y'all, but technically the proper grammar is just you. You can be singular or plural. In Greek, that's not the case. You can tell whether it's singular or plural. So he's talking to everyone. Then in verse 18, he addresses just a hypothetical objector with the singular you. Uh, and, uh, and then, or actually, he's actually responding to them in verse 20. And then you get down to verse 24, and he returns, like I said, he goes from the objectors talking, and the objector says, says this, uh, you know, oh, you, James, you're, you're thinking that faith and works have no connection? There's, there's, I mean, James, you're saying that faith and works go together? You need works to really make your faith vibrant and be effective and useful in your life? You're crazy. I'm going to explain to you, James, while you're wrong. And the objector makes his case, which I'll come back to in a second. But then James responds with verse 20 here, Do you want to know, O fool? And that's the characteristic phrase. Whenever you see that, someone will say, O fool, here's why you're wrong. That's called the hypothetical objector and the response. So let me show you a couple of places it's used. Uh, let's see, it's used in Romans 9, if I can find it here. Uh, hmm. I wish I had written down in my notes. Anyway, Paul uses it. Let me go back here. And he says the same kind of thing. Oh, oh fool. Oh, yeah, here it is, verse 19. Paul is making the point about God's sovereignty and choosing Israel. And here he says, you will say to me then, same kind of thing, oh, someone will say. And then he goes in response, he doesn't use the word fool, but he says, oh man, who are you to, re to reply against God? So an objector comes up. It's kind of like when a speaker in English in modern, you know, oration might say, make, make some, you know, uh, profound point. And then he might say, now I know what you're thinking, but here's why you're wrong. Same kind of idea. He uses the same thing, and it's actually more clear in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, let's see if I can find it. Um, but someone will say, sound familiar? That's exactly what we're seeing in James. Um, and then he goes, foolish one. Just another way of saying, oh, fool. So back to James. James is using this very common technique in Greek, you know, Greek culture of saying, look, I know what some of you are thinking. Uh, you have faith. I have works. And see where the, ex the uh, quotation mark stops right there? That's not where it really should stop. If you understand the hypothetical objector formula, this, the objector is continuing to speak all the way to the end of verse 19, which I've got highlighted in, in green, and it's not until Paul responds with, oh, foolish one, here's why you're wrong. So all of this is what 
the someone, the hypothetical objector, is saying. He's saying, look, I can prove to you, James. So again, this is the objector speaking to, to James. I can prove to you that faith and works have no connection. Uh, you don't really have to have one or the other. You, don't, you can have one or the other. You don't have to have both. He says, show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by works or with works. And he, then he gives an example. For example, James, you believe in the unity of God, and you do well. Again, that's not the best translation. Uh, this idea of do it, we talked about it earlier. It's poeo, to do, to behave, to act. So you, James, believe in the unity of God, and you behave well. The demons also believe in the unity of God, and they don't behave well. They tremble. So see, I've proven my point. Here's two people who both believe the same thing, and it doesn't necessarily have to produce the same behavior. And so James goes on and says, Oh, fool, do you need more proof that faith without works is useless? Remember that word means useless. And then he uses the example of Abraham, and he says that his faith was working together with his works, and these things that I have highlighted in yellow here are all singular. So James is speaking to the objector. And instead of using demons as an example, like the objector did, James goes right to the premier patriarch of Israel. He says, look at Israel. Don't you see that his faith and his works were working together to make him mature? This is teleos, or the verb teleo, teleo, perfect. Uh, and so uh, that's James's whole point. And then down here, verse 25, and I think, Paul, you and I some time ago talked about this verse. James sums up his point by saying, so therefore you, and by the way, this you is plural, so now he's come back to the podium and he's saying, after role-playing, I know what some of you are thinking, faith and works have no connection, there's no you know, uh, dependency on one or the other to make you mature, but if you're thinking that, you're a complete and total fool. And then he comes back here and says, so you all verse 24c, that in fact there are two kinds of justification. There's justification by faith before God, and there's justification by works before men. So he's not saying that there's two ways to get to heaven here. He doesn't mention heaven. He's just saying that there's, you know, two kinds of, of, uh, of justification. Um, there's justification before God by faith, which results in our position in Christ as perfectly righteous, then there's justification by men, uh, before men by works, which results in practical benefits and rewards at the bema and just avoiding the death-dealing consequences of sin and so forth. So, so is it safe to say the takeaway in James is he's speaking more to rewards versus eternal salvation? Yeah, the takeaway, I would say he's speaking more to sanctification, not justification. The Christian life and the consequences of sin, which are serious, he's already said they'll kill you. And now he's saying not only that, but it's going to cause you to not heap up rewards at the judgment seat. Uh, so yeah, the contrast, Paul, when he talks about faith, is talking about, not always, by the way, Paul has a lot to say about faith in the sanctification process, in Galatians, for example. But um, Paul is talking about justification by faith uh, for eternal salvation. James here is not talking about that. He's talking about faith for spiritual growth and sanctification, progressive sanctification, and so forth. And, right, because remember, just as sanctification has actually three senses, you can be positionally sanctified by faith, which is a synonym for justified. You can be progressively sanctified as you walk by faith and grow in the Lord. And you can be perfectly sanctified, which is glorification. 
In the same way, just there's two kinds of justification here. One of them results in a position. The other is seen by men and results in our uh, you know, blessing and commendation on earth. Remember, uh, Paul said in, where is it, Galatians 6, I think. I might be wrong on this. Uh, in Galatians 6... Yeah, I'm thinking of the wrong passage. But anywhere, anyway, he says that, you know, we, you can't have rejoicing in yourselves alone. Um, let me see if I can find that real quick. Whoa, that's weird. Um, yeah, we won't try that. Anyway, it's a passage that talks about, uh, I'm learning. This is all new technology, but I'm so excited to be able to throw passages up on the fly. Uh, where you can you can you can have sort of uh, you know rejoicing in yourself and be you know proud of what you're what you've accomplished. I think that's what uh, James is talking about here when he says there's two kinds of justification: one before men, one before God. But only the one before God. See, we we can't ever stand before God and say, "Look at all the good things I've done. Don't you think I've done enough to get into heaven?" That's not the way we get that kind of justification. How do we get that kind of justification? By faith, right? But we might stand and justify ourselves before others. You might say, hey, you should trust me because I've done this and that and I'm pretty good at this. We do that all the time when we're selling ourselves, right? When we're trying to get a job or trying to, you know, convince somebody of something. We, we justify ourselves before men and that's what uh, Paul is talking about here. All right. Um, so let's go back. Any questions about James 2 before we leave the this passage? We're just about out of time here. But I might add a couple more comments here just for our poor live streamers that missed the first 20 minutes so frustrating all right any other thoughts it's i promise you this is a passage that you because i still do will come back to again and again and go now what because <laughs> james says faith alone can't save you and we're so conditioned to think of save in terms of heaven hell that we hear it. if you pick 10 commentaries randomly off the shelf of any Bible college or seminary library on the book of James, how many of them do you think get this correct? I would say zero. I think you have to start, you have to get more like a hundred. And if you pick a hundred, you might find two or three that get it right. Because going all the way back to the Reformation, that's the way they handled it. And it's just sort of the self-perpetuating mistake. Um, remember Martin Luther because he understood James to be talking about eternal salvation here, and he knew that would contradict Paul, Martin Luther said James is not part of the Bible. Martin Luther's Bible had 65 books in it. He rejected James as being inspired because of this passage. Because he was a Catholic? No, just because... No, I mean, Luther understood justification by faith, but not, not correctly identifying the fact that there's only one kind of faith... But there are two kinds of save. You can be saved physically or you can be saved eternally. And the Bible uses them both. Again, 58% of the time. In the back of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I have a whole list of every occurrence of the word save in Greek, sozo. And I show you, I categorize them. So uh, he just didn't understand. He, it, at face value, he does what most people do today. Uh, and he says, well, if James is saying faith alone won't save you, you got to have works. Well, it's not. it can't be God's word. Because that contradicts what Paul said. And 
that's, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. So his solution was to rip James out of the Bible. What most reformers did, and what most people do today, because they know the Bible can't contradict itself, is they go, oh, Paul and James were talking about two different kinds of faith. Paul was talking about genuine, real faith, and James was talking about fake faith or spurious faith. That's where they came up with that concept of spurious faith. But you'll never find that reference in Scripture. There's no place in the Bible that talks about spurious faith. Faith is faith. It's, as you've heard me say many times, it's not the kind of faith that saves us eternally. It's the object of faith. A child's belief in Santa Claus is just as much real faith as my belief that Santa Claus is a myth. Just so happens that my faith is in a correct object and someone who you know, believes in Santa Claus is believing in a fake, a false object. But it's not the quality of the faith that's the difference. You see the point? It's the object. So a Muslim's faith in the, in the five pillars to get to paradise is real faith. It's just not in the right object. So we don't, it's not that they didn't have the right kind of faith. They didn't have faith in the right object. They didn't believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins. So James and Paul, most people take this passage saying, well, they're talking about two different kinds of faith, and you've got to have the right kind. And then that leads down the slippery slope to what we talked about in our Calvinism series, that Calvinists will say, real faith, if it's going to get you to heaven, has to have this commitment, this pledge, this obedience. And if you're living in prolonged sin, you're certainly not being obedient. Therefore, your faith was not the kind of faith that James says it has to be. It's fake. It's spurious. But that's not the solution. So it's the, the way to solve the apparent conflict between James and Paul isn't to rip James out of the Bible. And it isn't to create a new kind of faith that the Bible never speaks about. It's simply to understand in its original context the meaning of words. And, and I can show you... Uh, Lots of places where the word save, uh, you know, means uh, physical deliverance. You know, the woman touched the hem of his garment that she would be saved. That didn't mean go to heaven. It meant healed of her issue with blood. Or the servant's child, Lord, save my child. Or I'm sick, save me. Or James in James chapter 5, he talks about, let's, that's a good one. I should have thought of that right away. James chapter 5, you remember this verse? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Is anyone sick? Let him uh, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. Is James talking about eternal life here? All we got to do to get people to go to heaven is have the elders come gather around him and, and pray them into heaven? No. The prayer of faith will deliver the sickness from I mean, deliver the, the sick from their illness, right? So save means deliver is the point. And so the solution, they really, I don't think anybody in the first century would have read James's letter and had any confusion whatsoever. And indeed, you know, we see throughout church history, we don't, we don't see a real problem and contention over it till you get to the Reformation. And it's because we have front loaded this word save to always mean eternally. It's the same problem people have in Romans 10. They misunderstand the distinction between national deliverance and physical justification, individual justification. Uh, remember that verse, Romans 10? Whoops. Romans 10, 9. 
If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you know the word saved there is not talking about eternal life? Look at the next verse. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. That's Paul's term for eternal salvation throughout Romans. Justification. You believe and you're justified. But with the mouth, confession is made unto deliverance. Who's he talking about? People completely miss the context of Romans 10 and 11. He's talking about the nation of Israel and whether or not they're going to get into the kingdom. He goes on to quote uh, both Isaiah here in uh, when he says, Isaiah 28, 16, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame individually. And then he goes and he quotes Joel in Joel in verse 13 here from Joel 2, 32. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Go back and look at Joel 2. The context there is national deliverance into the kingdom. When Christ comes back, Israel will cry out as a nation, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord, calling on the name of the Lord, and they will be delivered supernaturally into their homeland once again. All Paul is saying here, if you go on and read in verse 14, is how can they, the nation of Israel, call on him in whom they've not first believed individually? And how shall they believe if they haven't heard? How can they hear without a preacher? And so forth and so on. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So Romans 10, 9 is simply saying, if, if Israel confesses with their mouth the Lord Jesus, having first believed in their heart, then they will be delivered into the kingdom. Because, you, you know, you, you, it's not two synonyms here. It's not saying, you know, confess and believe mean the same thing. It's two different things. Believe unto eternal salvation. Confess or call unto national deliverance. And we know that that has to be the case because down here in verse 14, he makes a distinction between the two. You can't call until you first believed. So calling and believing or confessing and believing can't be synonyms. But yet so many people use this verse and they say, well, if you don't, you know, if you're not willing to walk the aisle for Jesus who went to the cross for you, you can't go to heaven. You can't just believe you got to confess. You know, you got to walk the aisle. That's not what it's talking about there at all. All right. Well, um, I, uh, that's all I've got for tonight. We got through one more, but we got two more weeks. Uh, let me put this back up on the screen here. So we talked about uh, God's righteousness. Next week, we'll talk about God being trustworthy. And we're going to look at, um, I was hoping to get to this tonight, but we didn't. Uh, we're going to look at uh, the story of Balaam uh, and Balak. And, and then that's going to be kind of our focus because that's a key verse that talks about God's trustworthiness. Any closing questions or thoughts? All right. Once again, I apologize to our live streamers. Just a technical error on my part at the beginning that we didn't start the audio. Um, and I appreciate your patience as we get settled into this, into this new uh, technology. All right. God bless everyone.